There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. You've tuned in this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Rochelle Cahan. Rochelle is the Chief Executive Officer of Collective Liberty, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit committed to eliminating human trafficking. She develops and executes the organization's strategic direction and collaborations focused on disrupting specific types of human trafficking. She was formerly the Director of Disruption Strategies at Polaris, the nonprofit organization that operates the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline. Before joining Polaris, Rochelle spent six years as a prosecutor of gender-based violence crimes in Philadelphia. As an assistant district attorney, Rochelle championed the need for increased investigation and prosecution of human trafficking in Philadelphia, successfully prosecuting, prosecuting excuse me, the first two trials herself. For her tireless efforts, Rochelle has received numerous honors, including the 2018 Thomson Reuters Foundation Stop Slavery Hero. Rochelle Cahan, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much for having me. So before we start, I just want to touch on your time in Philadelphia. This is for all the Philly-based area, pe- area people. Your cheesesteak, with or without? Oh, with, for sure. <laughs> I, I assume that's how you would answer it. Good, great answer. <laughs> Rochelle, Collective Liberty's mission is to eliminate human trafficking. How is Collective Liberty similar to and different from other anti-trafficking groups? Oh, man, it's, it's hard to say. There's such a variety in the anti-trafficking space with so many different sort of approaches and opinions on the issue. I would say a lot of ways that we're similar is that we're incredibly passionate and driven to shift our society towards one where we don't tolerate trafficking and that the survivors are uplifted and empowered. And the key differentiator is that we're focused on obviously a lot of tactical stuff, but with the end goal being of shifting the systems and trying to use that systemic approach to actually eliminate trafficking. And I think that that is unique. And your goal is to encourage the existing human trafficking community and other stakeholders to think in new and innovative ways. Does that mean we've been going about anti-trafficking efforts all wrong? And what have anti-traffickers gotten right over the years? And what have they gotten wrong? And how can they be better? So it's not to say anyone's doing anything wrong, right? Um, But when I first got into the anti-trafficking movement, For example, the year I became a prosecutor is the same year human trafficking became a criminal offense in the state of Pennsylvania. So it was just new, right? And you're never doing everything 100% right the first time as a whole state or system or compilation of various systems tackles it. So not that we were doing anything wrong, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, And so trying to make sure that we don't find one thing that works and sticks to it, but that we're constantly innovating is something that we're really pressuring and pushing with all of our partners across the country. And most of our work is focused on government and systemic actors because that is the space in our country that by design innovates the slowest because it has to bring society and culture along with it, right? So you don't want this like pendulum for whiplash, but at the same time, Let's not innovate so slowly that the traffickers keep running circles around us. So that's where we're trying to make sure that it's constantly innovative and iterative. And I would say that if you want to label with right and wrong, 
before we were passing these laws, we just weren't really addressing trafficking, unfortunately, and that was wrong, right? Um, and now that we do have systemic approaches, there's a lot of learning curve and, you know, attempts at things that kind of explode in our face. So one wrong area is applying a sort of prostitution lens to sex trafficking and an immigration lens to labor trafficking instead of an organized crime systemic lens. And that's what we're trying to push forward. So a lot of the good things and great things that have been happening, even when the laws weren't really there, is people have been innovating and trying to work around those constraints. So it's just catching the systems up to all of that innovation so that we can really empower a better approach going forward. You touched on some of your partners, and I'm not sure if you're able to share, but who are your partners and how does the organization get to partner with Collective Liberty? Yeah, I mean, we partner, so it depends on the type of work, but for the actual hands-on stopping trafficking, our partners are the people empowered to do that. So it's a lot of law enforcement, prosecution, legislative, um, elected official partners. Um, for example, the child sex trafficking team at the Texas governor's office, we work with quite a bit over the past several years, over 400 different criminal investigation agencies in police departments, sheriff's office, state police, prosecutor's offices, financial crimes investigators in financial institutions, all the people that can, when they see trafficking, take a step to act on it, right? So we're like, let's equip you and help you do the best job possible. Because no matter how many we find, I can't put handcuffs on them. So I need those partners to help make it happen, right? And we also work really closely with survivors of trafficking because sure, maybe I'm an expert in criminal justice and some of that government systemic stuff, but I'm not an expert in like living through trafficking, living through the criminal justice system, helping me or not helping me. So to make sure it's really wrapping around and supporting survivors, we need that perspective also. Uh, and then different advocates, community groups, hotel, airline partners, because every system that traffickers exploit, we need experts in those systems so that we can collaborate on really like whole system solutions. The collective so partnering with us, just reaching out. Um, I get most of the messages on LinkedIn. So if you think that we can team up, just let us know. And that's how I found you. Perfect. It works. <laughs> He told me that the collective liberty model involves four main action areas. First is breaking down silos, then elevating local heroes, thinking outside the box, and then challenging the narrative. Take us through each of those steps and why they're important enough to make the right things happen. Okay. Yeah. So breaking down silos is really, really important. That's actually what was my primary goal when I left my government job that probably I could have kept for my whole career is... As I was investigating each case that I had for trafficking in Philadelphia, the traffickers and the evidence was happening in so many other cities, counties, and states, right? But in Philadelphia, my mandate was Philadelphia city and county. So we're getting subpoena responses from New York. I'm having to ask like written permission to hire, to pay for someone to fly in from another state to be a witness. And they're like, why, why just focus on Philadelphia, you know, like, I'll lose this case if I focus just on Philadelphia. But the way jurisdiction is set up is deliberately siloed. It's like literally has lines around what you're supposed to focus on. And traffickers don't care. They're going where the money's at. So 
in order for us to build these cases, we have to work together across agencies, departments, and like literal geographic boundaries in systems that are set up to really discourage that. So that silo busting is just vital. And the more I worked with agencies all over the country, the more everyone said this was one of the biggest systemic barriers to successful investigation and ultimately the, the biggest barrier to prosecution. And that's where the accountability comes, a conviction with penalty, right? Or at least removal from access to other victims. So until we fixed that, we're gonna they're gonna keep being light years ahead of us and we're gonna keep failing as a system. So that silo busting is so vital. And then as we were busting those silos, and that's actually what a lot of our initial awards were for because it's historically difficult to do in government to break those barriers, but the field itself demanded it. So we were able to harness that energy. But then we also realized it's not just that initial silo. It's also that social service agencies don't necessarily want to work with law enforcement and vice versa, or people can't sort of see the bigger picture of like, here's a Venn diagram and we have overlap maybe for one third. I need to stop obsessing with the part that I don't have overlap with and exploding the one third that I do and figure out what can I do to compromise and meet a collaboration where they're at and sort of achieve within those boundaries progress and keep pushing the envelope. And it was just a lot of silos that we didn't even necessarily anticipate that are constantly having to be disrupted. Um, And I think busting those silos really is like what's transformational because it allows for that whole system to come together and find, okay, here's all of our lanes. Let's at least try to drive in the same direction. Like I, we can't demand everyone drive in the same lane. First of all, there's not enough room in each lane, but also let's at least try to find some common ground somewhere. So I think as a nation over the last seven years to 10 years, it's really been happening. So that silo busting is the number one most urgent one. Um, And then the rest kind of flows from there. I'm looking down just to make sure I go in order. Um, Okay, yeah. And then so as I mentioned before, government, like private sector is innovating constantly really fast, iteratively. And that's because it's kind of their job, right? But government can't be like every week changing its mind. It needs to sort of pick a path, see it out and like bring society along with it. So innovating is different in government space. And that's why the next, like out of our four priorities, the next one is elevating local heroes because those are systemic actors that are slowly shifting internally to the system. And elevating them is less like an external pressure point trying to like pull push and pull but showing internally this is it's working internally and it's coming from the inside and also i think what it does is help other similarly situated systems be like oh that city attorney or that probation officer or that court staff did this thing in that city and that city is similar to ours in a lot of ways so maybe we can do it or Here's a difference that I'm seeing based on our city, but most of what they did would work. So why don't we take that and tweak it and improve it? And that way we're not having 18,000 cities reinvent the wheel, right? We're not starting from scratch over and over, relearning hard lessons, but we're just improving more exponentially. So, and also credit should be given where credit is due. So we're not going to 
find an amazing idea and steal it. We're going to find an amazing idea and really elevate the person that pushed it forward and help improve it with other partner jurisdictions. So as we bust the silos, we're also trying to elevate that excellent work. And that, that kind of leans into the thinking outside the box approach is just because we've always done it a certain way doesn't mean that's the way it always has to be done. And when you're thinking about trafficking and it's like less than a decade old across every state in the country, there's not even like a way that's established or settled. So just because you found a comfortable routine doesn't mean you should stick with it just because it's comfortable. We really need to make sure we find the best routine and really make sure that it's what we all need and what's going to improve society. So making sure we don't quickly and rigidly box ourselves into anything, but keeping it going. And ultimately, that's what hopefully leads to the impact that we're looking for, which is changing the narratives around trafficking. It's not necessarily something that we have to accept. These aren't necessarily the oldest profession that's, you know, we can't get rid of the exploitation and we just have to tolerate it. No, it's possible. And government can shift. Society can shift. Like we can do something about this. So let's switch from like, the overwhelm of doom and more towards we're all empowered to actually create the society we want to live in. Well, to your point about breaking silos and trying to work with others with the same mission agenda, you know, trafficking is not a Philadelphia problem or a state problem or a country problem. It's a global problem. Yeah. So is this something where there could be some international organization like the UN or the World Health Organization or the Red Cross that could be sort of the overarching standard setter, I'll say, a standard bearer for the, uh, I'll say for the industry, for lack of a better word, in terms of sharing information, keeping the, the network information flowing, showing those dip- disruptive ideas. Is that something that, that would work or could work? Or is it just you're going bottom up as opposed to top down? So I do think the UN actually has done quite a bit of work around this. And they have Alliance 8.7 that focuses on specific nuances within trafficking and really does try to mobilize global actors around uniform sets of ideas and standards. And then what's difficult is similar to how every state in the US has its own culture, every country in the world has its own approach, culture, amount of resources, political priorities, um, criminal justice enforcement priorities. And it's there's no one body that can demand anything, right? So without that layer of accountability, all you can do is hope, pray, and beg, right? So. There is some of that effort to to try to unify things, but then also there's, as I kind of referenced early on, there's not one sort of agreed upon approach. And we even have a lot of conflict within definitional expectations and standard setting here in the US on certain pieces of the trafficking movement. So I think that's part of, it's kind of new and we're all sort of growing and evolving towards something that maybe at some point we'd get there, but I do think it's kind of still in a grassroots culture building stage of like a multi-decade long process of sort of figuring out where we land on this. Um, But thankfully there are some global governing bodies that are putting effort into helping keep that process a little bit structured and moving forward in a progressive way. So until then we have to keep hoping, praying and begging. Yeah. And, um, unrelentingly fighting. Absolutely. Lions roar. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the, the good news is a mutual friend of ours, uh, Heather Fisher, 
was the first anti-trafficking czar in the previous White House administration. And so it is finally getting that national spotlight, the national attention it deserves. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you and I spoke last week. I told you that this is something that I had in my head in the sand on my entire life until two years ago when I had Andy Berger on, who was trafficked at the age of six months, to age of 16 by her family. And now I've made this one of my biggest issues out there. And so uh, thank you for the work that you do and continue to do. And so we'll just keep, you know, hoping, praying and begging. And thank you for taking your head out of the sand. It's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it took me a while, but uh, we finally got there. So the team that worked on that project collectively trained more than 3,000 police officers and 4,000 financial crimes investigators. How'd you go about getting that done, including paying for must have been some pretty heavy costs? Um, so it wasn't too heavy of a cost in that there is such a hunger for this tailored training, right? So I was one of the first prosecutors in the country to actually take a trafficking case to trial, a state prosecutor that was like only at the federal level so far. So there was a handful of us, right? Like a a dozen or a couple dozen that were trying to figure it out. And there's a lot of hunger for like, let me not have to figure this out completely alone in my office with no motions to lean on or examples to lean on. So that information sharing, there's been a strong hunger ever since I started. So it's been what, like eight years now that people have just really needed it. So it's actually sometimes too hard to meet the amount of demand that's present. And one difficult thing is still not funded and there's not enough resources. Like too many are like, well, if it starts crossing jurisdictional boundaries and becomes this complicated of an organized crime case, the state or federal agencies will handle it. But maybe they should, but they're not all handling it. They don't necessarily have the resources or the political will or desire to handle it. So if the locals don't, then a lot of these cases just won't get handled. And so we do just have to grapple with that shift in the reality of how the cases fall down and play out. So when when we show up with training, people show up to listen. There's a lot of follow-up afterwards. We've actually trained almost 11,000 investigators and prosecutors so far, mostly in the criminal justice space, but also several thousand that you listed were in the financial crime sector space. So a lot in financial institutions, because these are the people that are finding the key indicators that can hit the traffickers where they care, which is they're doing this for money, right? If you just arrest all the victims, they're disposable to the trafficker and they will be replaced. If you seize all of their assets, it's a completely different story. So um, mercifully, there's been such a hunger for it. So we're hoping that the system itself being hungry means we'll be able to shift it. When attention is focused on the trafficking crisis at all, it's been focused on sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. You also emphasize the need to put a spotlight on labor trafficking and combat that. How prevalent is labor trafficking? By most indicators, it's the most prevalent type of trafficking. Whether you're looking at the type of economic studies done by some places, the more academic scientific approach from the International Labor Organization and the reports they release, and the calls to the human trafficking hotline, the labor trafficking is significantly higher volume than sex trafficking. And it's just a little bit more complicated because it kind of hits everyone's bottom line in a different way than sex trafficking does. And I think touches on a lot of different political 
views and worldviews that kind of makes the solution over even more overwhelming to people than sex trafficking. So regrettably, we don't see it. There has been a strong federal push on at least some of the external to the U.S. labor trafficking that's happening and monitoring the type of goods we're importing and sort of blocking the ability to import them. But that's barely touching the tip of the iceberg because, for example, the devices you and I are using right now, the batteries in these devices likely had child labor from other countries picking the specific minerals or necessary to make those batteries. And the lipstick I have on has a little bit of mica in it, okay, that shiny stuff. That's also got significant amounts of labor trafficking in that supply chain. And almost everything we consume and use on a regular basis has touch points to it. So it's something that as individuals gets overwhelming because the systems themselves have a lot of work to do to sort of unravel daily life from all of it. Whereas sex trafficking, you know, and it's not so interconnected with everything we do from the moment we wake up to the moment we fall asleep. One thing I want to flag though, is that there are some super obvious pieces of labor trafficking that we kind of can have control over that might make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. Um, for example, Driscoll's berries had so much um, scrutiny in the U.S. because there was significant amounts of labor exploitation reported on a regular basis to the point where they finally left the U.S. and do a lot of their sourcing in other countries. And I was at a conference in Europe in fall. It was in Portugal. And the trafficking minister for the country of Portugal said, yeah, well, there's only so much we can do about labor and sex trafficking in our country when other countries just come here to exploit. And he described the berry farmers and the exploitation happening. And I raised my hand and was like, is Driscoll's berries, is, are they doing business here? And we exported our labor traffickers to other countries. And so Instead of solving it, we just allowed them to exploit people in other boundaries and they're still selling all their products here. So at least the ones that are doing that don't purchase from them, right? And there's like labor exploitation in poultry processing in the US is really, really violent and tragic. They're exploiting children and adults. Um, and some of them have been doing it for decades. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be naming brands, but there's another brand I could name that is on the top of my list of Do what it, I would please. never purchase. Tyson's Chicken. It's the most affordable for a reason. It's been engaging in labor exploitation for decades. And they there's a lot of problems. I published at the beginning of the pandemic. They So the poultry industry self-processes and self-manages, for the most part, the speed of the supply chain. And so... Imagine, I don't know how many of you have ever had to carve a chicken or a turkey for a holiday or something. That is not easy. You can't just do it in 30 seconds, right? It's tough, even with a really sharp knife. But there's people that have an assembly line of meat coming and they're having to butcher it for us, right? Like it, it doesn't, you know, just show up packaged. Someone's butchering it for us to buy it in the store. And the brand gets to decide based on their factory how fast that goes. And so, oh, Typical injury is like carpal tunnel or something because they're doing repetitive motions, but also there's really serious injury happening. Um, there was a mass wave of COVID. There was no protection and protocols. They don't have, you know, 
health insurance. So there's a lot of exploitation that happens, but we've also seen this year a few of the youth being trafficked there and one youth dying in one of those facilities. So um, there's a few brands that are so egregious, we should just not purchase from them. But I do think from a labor trafficking perspective, it's really tough when the systems themselves are kind of facilitating it and making it really hard for a consumer to do a great job. But at least Driscoll's and Tyson's, we should boycott them and don't purchase, don't give them your dollars. Let's go a little bit deeper then. How can we con consumers to do better? Is it about product boycotts or more consumer education? Or do we have to address the other side of the problem, convince companies to do what's right, regardless of what consumers do? I think it's it's both. I think that companies aren't going to do what's right unless consumers spend accordingly, right? Because I think what's been really illustrated here in the United States pretty evidently is if there's profit, we're going to do it. If things don't hurt our brand image that much, it's fine. And people probably don't even know too much about Driscoll's or Tyson's. Their brand image is totally fine. It's not suffering, right? So why, why change? Um, and so I, I think it's both that we have to, as consumers, demand better, ask questions, um, pay attention, be curious. If a price is too good to be true, check why. Okay, yeah, sure. Sometimes there's sales, right? And then the price is too good to be true because it's on sale. But if the price is just always too good to be true, like, that's interesting. And Driscoll's, for example, I don't know about lately, but almost always before they exported to Portugal, I was seeing two for $5 things of raspberries. I'm like someone had to hand pick those gently enough not to bruise them. There's no way that only costs $2.50 for that thing. Like, come on, this is insane. So like really paying attention like that repeated sale is way too good to be true. So that is something that maybe let me Google it and figure it out. Uh, similar to Timu popping up and all of a sudden, all of these things that are on sale for like 10 or 20% the retail value of things like think about the sourcing of it and where is it coming from um shane the fast fashion manufacturer i think they're suing timu or vice versa like they're fighting against each other but they're both already stealing designs from other people and have exploitation in their workforce so they're like competing against each other for the bottom line um most deplorable i'm not sure but some of them are obvious enough that we at least can choose not to participate in those while we challenge the system to help us with the more difficult things of overall, it's not just Tyson's that has problematic business practices and we should hopefully demand better, but we can also purchase from if we have the capital and resources to do it. Cause I know it's not so simple for everyone to pay more for things, but if we can purchase from places that we've researched and find are ethical in their practices, that ends up being valued with our dollars on top of any sort of advocacy that we're doing to bring brand pressure to expect better from brands and well, our legislators too. Well, unfortunately, I wish I'd known this yesterday when I went grocery shopping because I did buy Driscoll's berries. So I will no longer do that. And in high school- And if you it, do only buy it when it's like so cheap at least, so they're not profiting, but yeah, try not to. <laughs> well, I was just going to touch on that. So in high school, one summer I actually had a job picking raspberries and blackberries. So I know okay. exactly how difficult that is. And, right. How many did you smush? Uh, and then you can't- half. Yeah. And you get paid by how you, the size of your bucket, how much that weighs. And so you can't eat, eat them because you're not getting paid there either. So totally understand that. You know, Rochelle, we were having a great conversation. Do you mind if we skip the break and keep rolling? Sure. Can awesome. I add to the bucket thing you just said? Sure. So 
A huge issue with labor trafficking that's harder for us and the system has to focus on is people aren't paid for their work. They're paid for their output. So if it took you all day, like you said, to fill that bucket of berries, they don't care. They're going to pay you for that bucket. And if it's one hour that they're paying you for a 10 hour job, that should be illegal. That's not meeting the wage requirements, right? But there's all of these exceptions in labor trafficking that don't require a wage for your work. Um, And that helps the companies be like, well, I didn't know. I just paid for the output. But it's like, yeah, but you knew, like if you used your brain, it wouldn't be humanly possible to pay someone a fair rate to pick this entire bucket. Because what you're describing are those like huge multi-gallon buckets of things, right? Yeah, so- yeah, it was. It took me six hours, I think, for one bucket. I was like, this isn't worth it. What the hell am I doing yeah. this for? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to disruption if we can. Collective Liberty's key model is based on disruption. So answer this question for me. What are you trying to disrupt and disrupting and why? I am glad you asked this question. So there's a lot, like, I think going back to what we're maybe doing wrong is there's a really passionate emphasis on finding and helping victims in trafficking. And that's what we're trying to shift. Of course, the goal for all of this work is to help as many victims as possible, but that's not how you're going to stop trafficking. So our main push is we need to disrupt human trafficking. If we want to help victims, if we want to create more survivors and thrivers, we have to stop the traffickers and we have to be looking for them. If you're just looking for victims, it's not going to have an impact on the exploitation. It might help that one person, but it keeps that whole industry and economy going. And that's got to be what our focus is. So that's an addition to the anti-trafficking space that our work at Collective Liberty has really been pushing is we need to disrupt the human trafficking economy in the U.S. globally. And that that focus requires looking at the human traffickers, the criminal operations, the different pieces of it, and stopping the whole layer, that whole network, the whole organized criminal enterprise, not just whoever happened to be with the victim when we found the victim. That's going to be like, you know, a little piece of a much bigger puzzle. And that puzzle, you can still see it operating if you take a piece of it out. You need to take out the whole puzzle. So that's our main focus is disrupting entire networks and enterprises and really making dents in the trafficking economy in the U.S. You have several case studies that you can point to how the status quo can be disrupted. One involves work to eliminate massage parlor trafficking. Tell us about that project and its results, please. So we wanted to illustrate that when you try to take a whole systems approach, it really will make a difference. And it creates a disruptive model that disrupts trafficking while doing the least amount of harm the potential victims. Because right now, so massage parlor trafficking is a hybrid form of trafficking. It's both labor and sex trafficking. So it has business registration. It has utility records. It has like a paper trail that's not always present for like a pimp controlled trafficking network, for example. So we could illustrate the different systems that could come together to help and also try to encourage passion around labor trafficking, not just sex trafficking. But another thing is that type of trafficking was only ever handled in at the time we started doing this work using vice or morals style investigation where they're looking for prostitution and trying to stop prostitution. 
Well, let me tell you, prostitution is not the same as trafficking, right? And if you're trying to find prostitution, the most you're going to find is the person that's either engaging in sex work consensually or is a victim of trafficking. And if you're just going to arrest them, neither one of those is going to stop trafficking, right? So you're not really disrupting trafficking at all. So this was our first disruption effort. First of all, to be like, look, vice can't be used to stop trafficking. It's just not, it's apples and oranges here, even though it feels similar. But that goes back to a law just passed. We don't have the funding to create a whole new unit, a whole new investigative approach. We're going to figure out what kind of works. And it just didn't really work, right? That was an attempt that didn't quite land. So doing a lot of education around, look, you maybe this is your entry point in. It really shouldn't be, though. And Vice just shouldn't be handling these types of cases. And also, when you engage the whole system and you're engaging with the insurance agencies, the the tax agencies, the business regulation and licensing agencies, and you're getting all of those government documents, you're able to start really piecing together. Is this a legitimate business or not? What are their business practices? Are they honest or fraudulent? And then you start looking at any financial crimes that they're committing, the way the wages are paid, if they're paid at all, the worker treatment, the way the victim is experiencing this work, and really building out what's helpful for them. Another reason this is great is because most people engaging in work that's exploitative, they need the money. Okay, and if we just close the business and don't get them their back wages and don't focus on what they need, we leave them even more vulnerable. And who's going to find them next? Potentially another trafficker. So we also need to be paying attention to their back wages and getting them the money that they deserve. And if you use that whole system approach, you're much more likely to not only stop the trafficker, prevent them from reopening that business, but also leave the victim in a much better place than they were before you did this investigation. So essentially it's bringing that work was bringing a lot of people to the table to see how they could work together. And we did that in a few jurisdictions across the U.S., tested the model, used case studies from what worked and didn't work in those different jurisdictions, um, and really published a playbook that hundreds of cities and a few of the states have been using to guide their entire approach to massage parlor trafficking in the US. It kind of went viral. It was really effective because it showed multiple different cities, like urban, rural, suburban, what worked, what didn't work. We did a lot of data on massage parlor trafficking in the US. We talked to over 1,200 survivors of massage parlor trafficking about their experience and the business model. And because we were current and former law enforcement, prosecutors, survivors, social service agencies, legislators, we had the whole system represented on the research team as well. So it really proved to us that this whole system approach can make a difference for trafficking and might like sort of entrench the approach so that when the local hero that's willing to test the envelope retires or leaves, the system's still working. So um, I, it was really successful. I do think it hasn't 100% shifted in the US, but it's a significantly higher percentage of these massage parlor investigations in the U.S. now are focused on an organized crime perspective and are no longer arresting the victims, which essentially was our primary goal. Is like, you got to stop 
making the life, making life even worse for these victims. You got to help them or stop, you know? Um, so I would say it was a strong success in so many ways. What challenges have you encountered or do you encounter in disrupting the status quo and how have you overcome them? Disrupting the status quo is hard. <laughs> it's not easy. Um, there's not really any incentive, right? This is how it is. We're allowed to be this way. Like, why should we make life more difficult for ourselves? Um, so it has not been the easiest thing. Um, but I think we're of the systems we're trying to disrupt. So I don't typically go somewhere where I'm completely fish out of water and expect them to listen to me, right? If that's happening, I find someone of that system and I collaborate with them because you got to know enough about the system to shift it logically and rationally within the, you know, boundaries of that system. So we did start where we had expertise, which I think made a huge difference because we weren't showing up and saying things that the listener would be like, what are you even talking about? Because we were able to speak like really directly to the heart of what we know they're living on a daily basis. And it proves to them a certain level of trust because it's like, oh, you lived through this. Like it's obvious based on the way you're talking to me. And so there's a different receptivity, right? And focusing on criminal justice, it's already kind of like a in exclusive network. It's closed. And so being inside it already was also, I think, really helpful to help push push the envelope. And then having such strong success there, I think built a lot of goodwill, right? So people trust us that we're, we're not just like, you know, running off half cocked, we have plans, we have structure, we work ethically within the systems that we know. And as we expand to new systems, we are sure to be inclusive of those systems and make sure that it's responsive to those specific systems. So I think picking our lane, crushing it in our lane, and then partnering with other lanes and helping crush it in other lanes has been an effective path towards overcoming a lot of the normal difficulties in systems change, which is just human nature. It's easier to do what you've always done, you know? A moment ago, you were talking about massage parlors. And I think most of us would instinctively or knee-jerk choose them as, you know, a questionable business just because of the, the to your point, the history of, of things that have occurred. Are there specific industries or sectors of the legal economy that must be disrupted to reduce or eliminate trafficking? And if so, which ones and why them? Regarding massage parlor trafficking or just nope, other just types? Other types. Yeah. So there's a lot. Um, yeah. I think we're just most familiar with like sound of freedom or taken, right? Like some kid getting kidnapped and exploited in an extreme intense way. And that absolutely happens, but it's not the majority because traffickers are hiding. They're not broadcasting what they're doing because they don't want to get caught. So it's a lot more difficult than just that. But the types that we've helped with over, we've helped with thousands of trafficking investigations in the U.S. And while quite a few are sex trafficking or a hybrid of sex and trafficking in massage parlors, there's also tons of labor trafficking and some different types of sex trafficking. And quite a bit is in agriculture, uh, all various type of crops, um, in meat processing at the husbandry stage where you're taking care of the animals all the way through the butchering, the processing for sale, uh, every layer of it. When people are isolated, when it's routine work, when it's like tough work, um, 
factory-based work, really tough. We also hear all kinds of stuff like Zara's, you know, clothing manufacturers overseas. We found labor trafficking. We repeatedly, like every couple of years, there's a huge garment factory trafficking situation in U.S., like in Los Angeles garment factory, Chicago, New York. So here in the U.S. too, it's not overseas and paying attention here is really important. Where are the garments being made? Okay, if you're going to Forever 21 and it's costing $7 for a shirt, maybe there's a reason, you know? And there's this great LA Times expose like eight or 10 years ago where they go back to that piece rate price that we were talking about before, where it's like, you're not getting paid for your work. You're getting paid for filling that bucket of berries. You're not getting paid for your work. You're getting paid for the number of shirts you make. So some at Forever 21 might have like a really crooked seam. And that's because they're making it as fast as they can because they're not getting paid for their work. Uh, There's just red flags and sort of extreme examples happening right here. The construction industry. um, So alongside poultry and agriculture processing, the construction industry also has had an increase in child labor exploitation, not just adults over the past several years. Um, So paying attention if you're building a home, Um, or you're engaged in any construction projects, like what are their practices? Are they, you know, 30% less than every other agency you talked to? There might be a reason for that. So really just digging in and making sure. Domestic work, housekeeping, landscaping all have, obviously there's legitimate, I'm not saying you can't use any of these services, but really paying attention because more and more cases pop up with that exploitation layer to it that if we can avoid it, obviously it's best. But there are dozens of types, um, dozens of industries with trafficking, regrettably. How do you measure the effectiveness of the disruption you create or strive to create? And what metrics or, or indicators do you use to assess the impact? That's a great question. I think there's a few layers of measuring success. We always want to make sure that the methods we co-create with our partners in government, nonprofit, um, social service are relevant to more than just one place, right? So if we work with NYPD or Houston on a solution, we also want to then work with Waco and Montgomery, Alabama on that solution and figure out what tweaks are necessary to make it relevant to different parts of the country, different size agencies, different demographics. Um, so that it's responsive because you can't just be like, here's our national solution when our country, I mean, even just one neighborhood over is going to be dramatically different. You really need to be responsive. And then we include survivors in the building and execution of that work. And they have to be part of the metrics. Like how does this solution impact survivors and what are all the various ways survivors could be impacted? And how do we prepare for that? How do we have a warm safety net around the potential, like if this goes wrong, what could happen? And how do we sort of account for making sure that the harm to survivors is minimized as much as possible? And always keeping that as part of the calculation, I think is really important and a strong metric we try to pay attention to. So as representative, as a solution as possible so that it can be replicated and reused and not just disrupting traffickers, but uplifting survivors as the valuation of whether it's a successful solution or not. And uplifting survivors is something we all, I think, take for granted or just don't think about. And so I love to hear that as part of your your equation for success. 
Now, let's do something you don't like to do much. Talk a bit about you. Uh, <laughs> how did you know? <laughs> you told me last week when we spoke. You're a first-generation American, and I'm guessing that you came with your parents, but where did your family come from, and how did they decide to come here? So I was born here, and but all my family immigrated from Iran. Um, my dad married an American, um, but I was raised with my immigrant family. And they came around the revolution, which I think most Iranian Persian immigration happened around that time. So I was a few years later, the American baby. Um, and that, I think I'm really, really grateful for that background because I think it gave me such a different perspective, right? They had such gratitude for a lot of the things we take for granted here in the U.S. as our rights. And they had such a different experience and perspective having grown up in a place that's a lot more restricted and has a different approach to human rights and dignity. So that gratitude instilled quite a bit of gratitude in me. And I think it's why I'm so invested in our systems. I think we have a lot of, um, in the U.S., people you know, complaining a lot, you know, and it's like, this is our country and we get to make it what we want it to be. And whining doesn't fix that. And whining's part of our country too. And whining's also a choice, you know, and I choose instead of whining to like really help our country be the best that it can be in what I imagine for it. And I do recognize something that I've learned is not everyone can see like that. Like they see what's in front of them and can get overwhelmed by it. And I'm able to see what it should be and what I want it to be and what I think we all deserve it to be. And just, I'm inspired by that. So I know you asked me a couple of times, like, how do you keep going? Cause what you're doing is heavy, like in every layer of it's heavy. And it's because I have this vision of what's going to come from it, you know, and really pushing for it. And I'm, my background is I think a really vital part of that. And on my mom's side of family, like either way, we didn't grow up with means, right? We were, you know, uh, quite a few immigrants living in one house. And my mom's side of the family wasn't, you know, they're not born into a trust fund. So there was a lot of financial struggles. I didn't know, though, because I was surrounded by love. But looking back, like staples, the first day of school every year, we went to the back of the bus to get our backpack and our school supplies. Like I was in one of those school districts, but I didn't know. But it just really taught me. I got to see the way society helps each other and shows up for each other. And it was normalized for me. And it's also part of the immigrant side of things where that everyone supports each other. When new family immigrates, you support each other. So I really did grow up with a very normalized sense of the whole system approach to things. And I'm not sure that I actively on a daily basis think about that, but that is my approach to how I operate in the world and what I give back to it. And I have to credit that upbringing of being like, this is what you should expect from the world and what you should give to it. And that being why I push for that solution, I think on a daily basis. We need more people like you out there. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Your focus was and is on empowering survivors instead of arresting them. How long has it been the other way around, arresting and punishing survivors instead of getting them the help that they need? And how common is it still? Regrettably, it's just been the approach this whole time. 
And it's still incredibly common because the way the system is set up, unless you say, help me, I've learned enough about trafficking to understand what it looks like. And I've done a lot of work on myself and my experience with the world to realize that this has happened to me and it's not my fault and I didn't deserve it. So I can identify as a victim and I have enough courage to ask for help. Unless that happens, we're just arresting victims for the most part. Um, So we still have a long, long way to go. But I will say I've seen a significant amount of progress in like willingness to shift that approach, even though the systems and protocols and policies themselves haven't always caught up. So there's a lot of hope there. It's just we're having to retrain a whole system that always had a prostitution statue and only recently got a trafficking one, you know? So you have to like rewrite the entire approach to entire industries. Um, so we have a lot of work to do there. We shouldn't think we're past it, but I do think that the system's ready and willing to sort of push into it. Well, I guess maybe as a follow-up for that, how do we ensure that victims of sex trafficking are treated with sensitivity and provide the necessary support throughout the legal process? Huge. I know. So when I was a prosecutor, we worked really closely with a women's abuse shelter and advocacy center, and they were in the courtroom with me and they were talking to the victims as like, I would prep them to testify and right alongside it, they got support and like knowledge of the resources available to them. And there were times where the advocate pulled me aside and said, like, please don't make her testify. And I really did have to choose between how dangerous was this perpetrator to society versus what did this victim need in this moment? And what case can I build to move forward without her? And really having that level of trust and collaboration, I think is vital at every layer of the system so that the victim isn't just sort of expected to also be a cop in the process, you know? Being named the Thomson Reuters Foundation Stop Slavery Hero is a prestigious honor in your field. Congratulations again. Thank you. Was your recognition based on the entirety of your work or a specific phase or project? I think that, so the CEO of the foundation, when I met with her, she she really seemed to emphasize the fact that, because I guess, multiple major police departments nominated me. And she said that the system itself in so many ways was validating your work. She she said that that was the thing that was the most compelling to her, that I was able to bring the system together in a way that the system itself felt was worth noting. Um, And so I do think it's a lot of the silo busting is the primary thing, but systems change itself is kind of hard for people to understand. And it's not always because it's not as simple as I extracted a victim and rescued them, it's not always as exciting. And so people don't, I think, dig into it as much. And so the fact that that's where we've focused a lot of our work, um, that that's the primary uh, area of the award. You have role models either in or out of your field. And what is it about them that inspires or motivates you? You know, it's been, there's so many role models, but since we're wrapping up, I'd like to focus on the people that have endless compassion and love. That is not always easy. And when I was a prosecutor, especially, that was difficult because you're seeing some of the worst things human beings do to each other on a constant daily basis. And having compassion and love, you know, is you're closing off to it to protect yourself. Um, And since I've shifted like one step away to helping those prosecutors and investigators 
as they help other victims, seeing the ways that social service agencies, government individuals, prosecutors, investigators are showing up every day with love and compassion, even if they're not receiving it, I think is what's making a difference. If we're paying attention to the people in our lives, whether they're main fixtures in our lives or passing moments, and we're giving love and compassion, I do think that it will shift these systems even more strongly than us asking the system itself to shift. So like there's some people that there, there's a couple women that I've worked with that do a lot of donation and volunteer work. And they also have been endlessly supporting like the children in their children's lives, like letting them stay for weeks on end, packing extra lunches for their kids to take. And that compassion and seeing like, I see a path this kid's going down. Let me help prevent it. Let me be a source of love that's healthy and safe. Just in all of these different ways, that love and compassion showing up, I think is an, a huge inspiration for me. And before we wrap up, where can people learn more about Collective Liberty and you and your work? I would say go to htfusion.org or our social media. My LinkedIn is a helpful place. I'll share stuff. And collectiveliberty.org too. But htfusion.org has a lot of this systemic focus of our work. So it'll give you more on this area of the work. Michelle Kahan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. No, I appreciate your time and certainly the work that you do. And so keep up the fight and we're right there behind you. Ah, I'm so grateful. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on X, formerly known as Twitter. How long do we have to keep saying that? At Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.